Beloved Church of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, there are a lot of strange ideas about election, divine election, that are out there. Some people you meet, you meet may reject it out of hand because they think that it is a Calvinist teaching. And they don't realize that election is something that God reveals to us in the Bible. Others don't really care if it's in the Bible or not, but simply reject the teaching because they've wrongly concluded that reprobation is not just unpleasant, but also cruel and doesn't fit with their idea of what God is like or what God should be like. Others reject the teaching for logistical reasons, pointing out that the teaching could cause people to become fatalistic in their lives. They might become careless in their piety. And none of these misunderstandings or none of these accusations are new to our day and age because it's never been easy for people to understand and simply accept what God has revealed to us in his word. Now, the canons of Dort that we just read a portion of this afternoon is a statement of faith concerning all that the Bible teaches about election, particularly the first chapter. This confession was written to interact with false teachings that were being taught by a professor named Jacob Arminius who claimed to be reformed. He held to the Belgian Confession, he said, and to the Heidelberg Catechism. And he was unable to accept the incomprehensible statement that God is 100% sovereign and people are 100% responsible. And so Arminius and his followers, often referred to as Arminians or Remonstrants, they tried to combine God's divine plan with people's ongoing responsibility in a rational and a logical way. And the result was that in their teaching, God himself was moved to the sideline as a mere observer, waiting for people to do the right thing and be saved. They concluded that God was only able to make salvation available to people for the taking, but it was up to people to accept God's offer of salvation, to believe in Jesus Christ, to cooperate with the Holy Spirit, and to remain faithful until their, until their death. They believed that if they gave people the deciding vote in their own salvation, then God could not be blamed for a person's condemnation if someone didn't believe in him. And Christians who did believe could be motivated by this knowledge to bear up under the suffering that came to them because they wanted to live a godly life. So in order to test this theory, these, these teachings that were coming out, the church went to the Word of God and then asked the questions that the Arminians, the remonstrants, had raised. And so they heard the question and they looked and said, is this what the Bible teaches? Does the Bible teach that God depends on people's cooperation in order to save them? Does the Bible teach that God needs to wait for people to make up their mind in order to save them? 
Do they have to, does God wait for people to decide whether or not they will follow him before he can save them? Does the Bible teach that our safety in God's hands depends on our ability to keep ourselves from temptation and all unfaithfulness? Does the Bible teach that believers can trust in God to preserve them by his word and spirit? Or does it teach that we should constantly be questioning whether or not we are saved? Our confession in the Canons of Dort is basically the result of the testing of each of the teachings that were being taught in that day and testing those teachings according to the Word of God. And so if you look at the Canons of Dort as a confession as a whole, you will see that at the end of each chapter there is a rejection of errors. And those rejection of errors were actually prepared first. So they took an error and they responded to the error. They refuted the error with the Bible open. They showed how it contradicts the Word of God. And then after this had been done, the churches took all the, all the texts they had used to reject the errors, and they added some more in to make a confession out of all the positive statements of Scripture concerning election and atonement and depravity and grace and perseverance. And so now in the final version, the work that was done first is at the end of each chapter and the positive statements are at the beginning and that's what we start to look at this afternoon. And as we do that, we have to remember Article 14. If you can see Chapter 1, Article 14, that teaches us about how this doctrine is to be taught. And it's very clear that there are many things we cannot understand and we have to be honest and humble before the Lord about that. As God reminded Job, we were not there before the world was created. We are actually unworthy to question God or challenge what He has decreed. And so we proceed as a congregation into this topic with great humility committed to only speaking what God revealed to us in the Scriptures through the prophets, through Christ Himself, through the apostles. And we do so as a church for which this teaching was particularly intended. Adopting the confession as a true summary of Scripture, we also hold on to the conclusion. And if you look at the conclusion of the Canons of Dora, you'll see there's an exhortation to the ministers of the gospel of Christ, the ministers who, who preach this teaching. And they're exhorted to conduct themselves in a God-fearing and reverent manner, ensuring that they teach this doctrine without going beyond the Scriptures in order to seek the praise or the glory of God's name the holiness of life, and the consolation or the comfort of afflicted souls. Now when we turn to Ephesians 1 today, we quickly realize that the teaching of divine election is not a teaching that arose out of Calvinist Reformed churches, but it is something that is clearly taught to us in the Scriptures. In fact, if anyone asks you where the Bible teaches that God made an eternal decree to choose some people for salvation through Christ from the condemnation they deserved, well, you can answer them. You can say God teaches that 
in Ephesians 1, verses 4 and 5. And I preach this gospel under this theme, God shows some people to salvation in Christ before the world was made. We see that God's eternal decree identifies a definite number of specific persons and that it predestines these people to grace and to glory. If you have your Bible open in front of you, you can see that Ephesians 1 starts right away with a connection between Paul as an apostle of Christ Jesus and the will of God. Right here we see that Paul knew he was in his position because of God's will. And then this continues on and we can see in verse 3 that this Lord is so powerful he is able to give every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And then we get to verse 4 where his sovereignty and power is further explained when Paul reveals that God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. It's a very clear statement of divine election, divine choosing. It's written in plain language that can only be denied if we actually change the meaning of the Greek and the English words. It's supported as well by many texts elsewhere in Scripture, such as 2 Timothy 1 verse 9, which states that God gave us His grace in Christ Jesus before the ages began. It's actually a teaching that's not disputed by anyone who holds the teaching of Scripture, and it's the common starting point for both Arminians and Reformed believers in their discussion on the details of what this election looks like. And so before anything else, it must be clear that if anyone has a problem with the idea that God chose people before the foundation of the world, they don't just have a problem with Reformed believers, or even Arminians for that matter, but they have a problem with what God revealed about Himself to us in the Scriptures. And then if we look back at Ephesians 1 verse 4, we can see that it confirms not only that God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, but it also explains whom God chose. And so we look back at the letter and we see who the letter is addressed to. And we see, verse 1, it's to saints who are faithful in Christ Jesus. The word saint means holy one, one who has been made holy. And although it has been used in some churches as a title for people who did more good works than bad works, in the Bible it is a word that is used to describe everyone whom God has redeemed in Christ's blood and forgiven because they believed in Jesus Christ, like we see in verse 7. Ephesians is clear that God chose specific and particular people before the foundation of the world. And so when Paul says us in verse 4, he could think of the names, the faces of the people that God knew before the foundation of the world. In John chapter 17, and John 17 verse 6 was the display text as we came in this afternoon, our Lord Jesus is very clear that God had given him certain people out of the world so that he might manifest God's name to them and give them eternal life. 
When God made his decree, he knew whom he would appoint to eternal life. And we read in Acts 13, verse 48, that as the gospel was going out, as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. We think of Psalm 139 that we will sing together later in the service. We confess that God saw our unformed substances and in his book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. When we think about what that means for us, for our comfort, when we understand that we have been included in God's plan from eternity, so it's like we're engraved on God's hands. That's how Isaiah describes it in chapter 49, verse 16. We get a sense of the depth of God's love for us and the amazing privileged position that we as believers have in the history of the universe. If we today believe in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, we can know that even before our parents knew us or gave us a name, the creator of the universe knew what our name was. In Isaiah 40 verse, 20, 40 verse 26, we read that the Lord called the stars out by name. If the stars, how much more his chosen people. He knew the names of all his chosen ones before the foundation of the world. But he worked out his eternal decree in time through the covenant that he established with believers and their children. Now there's an important difference between God's sovereign decision to have some children born to believing parents in the covenant relationship and God's eternal decree to save some of those children. Although your baptism is a 100% guaranteed sign of God's promises for you, that baptism does not automatically bring salvation to the person it is given to. When the Holy Spirit in our text identifies those whom God has chosen, He doesn't just stop at those who have been marked as covenant children with the sign of circumcision in the Old Testament or baptism in the New Testament, but He specifically addresses the saints who are faithful to Jesus Christ. Although it's true that God chose one people over all nations, like we read in Deuteronomy 7, that salvation was brought to the world through this covenant people, like we read in John 4, and that children of believers are extremely privileged to receive the promises of the triune God's love for them. The water of baptism itself doesn't wash away sins. And a person is not a saint simply because God has given him promises. When we talk about God's work of salvation, we begin by talking about the covenant because God gathers his church through believers and their children. But we also understand there is a distinction between receiving the promises and being chosen to salvation. Jesus said in Matthew 22 verse 1, for many are called, but few are chosen. And so we are reminded again that these covenant promises that we have received from God along with the sign of baptism, they come with an obligation 
to receive and believe the promises of God, to accept Christ and all his benefits, to worship the Lord with our heart and our soul and our mind and our strength. And those promises only become realities in our lives through faith in Christ, the renewal of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. And so we see that when Paul speaks of us, the us who were chosen before the foundation of the world, chosen to salvation, he's speaking of those who have responded to God's promises in faith. And that is us who believe. If you believe in the triune God, if you believe all that He has promised you in your baptism, then you can include your name in this us of Ephesians 1. You can experience the joy of knowing you have been predestined to grace and to glory, to salvation and the way of salvation. In Ephesians 1, the Holy Spirit reveals that God chose people in Christ for a specific outcome. You can see that at the end of the verse, that we should be holy and blameless before him. And the verse right after speaks of being predestined. The word predestined makes it clear that God had an end goal for those whom he chose. Your destiny was predetermined and you can read about what it looks like in Ephesians chapter 1. No, the Bible doesn't tell you you are destined to be famous destined to be poor or destined to greatness, but it does tell you that in his eternal decree, God destined you who believe to be holy and blameless before him. Because he loved you, God predestined you, we read in verse 5, for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. You are destined, we see in verse 6, to to bring to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. Even before the foundation of the world, God predestined you to an inheritance which is guaranteed by the Holy Spirit like we see in verses 13 and 14. That's why we confess we are predestined to grace and to glory. We are predestined to salvation and the way of salvation. There's a golden chain that cannot be broken from our predestination to our glorification. As the Holy Spirit tells us in Romans 8, verse 30. This verse says, And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. You can see why we confess that the teaching of election brings unspeakable comfort to believers. It's almost beyond what we can put into words. Not only has God showed us, shown us that he, has, he guarantees the outcome of our faith, but the revelation of His complete and powerful work in our lives also makes it clear that our salvation is not dependent on our own ability to contribute something to our salvation. Now the Lord has made it very clear in Genesis 3 
in Romans 3 that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But even if God didn't tell us this in, in the Word, it wouldn't take us very long to realize that our sinful natures are not very different than the sinful nature of, of any one of our neighbors around us, believing or unbelieving. Not only can I understand why people show hatred, why people are tempted by adultery, why people fall in love with money and are not very honest, but I see that I often desire the, the very same things. There's a constant conflict in my heart against my sinful nature. Paul writes about that in Romans 7, Galatians 5. And when I grieve over my daily sins of weakness, I am so thankful that my salvation does not depend on my ability to continually produce a faith in God that perseveres until my death. The distinction God made was a profound distinction between people equally worthy of condemnation that is not only just, but also in my case and in our case, it is exceedingly merciful. Although God would have done no one an injustice if it had been His will to leave the whole human race in sin and under the curse and, and condemn it on account of its sin, He didn't do this. That's the gospel that we rejoice in even today. He was merciful to those whom He elected in Jesus Christ our Lord so that every Christian may rejoice that God Himself has rescued us from perdition. He did so with this already His eternal decree. That's the unspeakable comfort that the Lord graciously reveals in the Scriptures. And He specifically tells it to the people whom He has chosen before the ages so we can understand how it can be that we, that we are saved in Jesus Christ. How we became members of Christ's body. I mean, when we look back, we, we shake our heads. There's just so little explanation for our faith in our own lives. So many of us we're disobedient to our parents and teachers. So many of us were careless in our spiritual lives. So many of us entangled in sins, filled with guilt over our addictions, party animals, sports worshipers, money lovers. And yet, we're here today, having left it behind, rejoicing in God's amazing grace, fighting those temptations. How can it be? God's grace. Our worship is a testimony of God's amazing grace in our lives. It's a privilege, it's a joy to be able to preach this grace. To know about this grace. To smile. It's not your own doing. Your faith is a gift of God. We read in Ephesians 2 verse 8. And God reveals this to us, not only so we rejoice in His grace, but that we never grow arrogant. That we never believe that we can earn salvation or favor with God by our strong 
faith or other works that we might produce that we kind of distinguish ourselves from others because we're better. You have been chosen by name to grace and to glory, predestined to salvation and the way of salvation, completely according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. And we receive that with joy. Ephesians 1 is emphatic that we are chosen not in ourselves, but in Christ. Christ is the mediator, the head of all the elect, the foundation of salvation, like we sang together. When God chose us before the foundation of the world to salvation, He saw us already in Christ. He decreed to give us to Christ so that we might be saved, so that we might be effectually uh, called and drawn into His communion through His Word and Spirit. By connecting our salvation to the perfect work of the Son of God Himself, the Lord made it clear that there is nothing that can stand in the way of His eternal decree. It is found in Christ, and Christ did His work perfectly. Through Christ's blood shed on the cross, we are washed completely of all our sins. And since Christ is our righteousness, there is nothing that we sinners can do or need to do for our salvation. It has been accomplished for us in Jesus Christ. That's the guarantee. Christ is the guarantee. The Holy Spirit in our hearts shows us the guarantee so that we might rejoice in Christ and worship the triune God with sincere hearts. The comfort for believers is that God's grace is choice. It's unconditional. There's nothing we have done to earn God's grace in our favor. There's nothing we can do to frustrate God's plan for our lives. The gospel about God's grace to us sinners gives us a great idea what God can do in the lives of anyone we meet, including the people we meet who do not yet know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. The teaching of election explains the work of God and the past in our lives. It shows us how we got to be where we are as God worshipers. But it doesn't make a final judgment on those who have not yet responded to the preaching with faith. In fact, the teaching of God's divine decree, His eternal decree, it shows us what God can do in the lives of of everyone we meet. No one is beyond hope. No one is beyond the grasp or the power of God Almighty. And if you are here today, if you're listening today, you do not yet believe, you can know that as long as you have the opportunity to breathe, you have the opportunity to repent, God makes those changes. Rather than create barriers for those who don't yet believe, God's Word shows you what He could do in the lives of unbelievers. The one decree of election, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, declares that we can be saved by God's wrath. We can be restored to favor with Him through Jesus Christ. And you know what Jesus Christ said 
in his teaching. He said, this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that has been given to me, but raise it up on the last day. May we be comforted in life and in death with these promises. Amen. And now sing in response of our comfort in life and death as we confess that together in the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 1, and that's put to music in hymn 64. And we'll sing that hymn standing if you're able to stand. Thank you.